Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's a lot riding on the dinner Saturday night between President Trump and China's President Xi. If things go bad, we might get what former Secretary of the Treasury Hank Paulson called a few weeks ago an economic iron curtain that unmakes the global economy as we've known it. On the other hand, if President Trump puts the brakes on more tariffs, there's a chance that trade talks in December could start to clear the air between the U.S. and China. With me to talk about what's happening with the U.S. and China is Phil Levy, Senior Fellow at the Global Economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and he teaches at Northwestern. Nice to see you. Nice to hear you, Phil. Good to be with you again. And writer Ted Fishman is here. He's the author of China, Inc. and Shock of Gray. Great to see you, Ted. Great to be here. Uh, nice to be with you, Phil. Uh, now, Ted, to start us off here, um, the stakes seem so high here between this mano a mano meeting between these uh, nationalist leaders who have been having economic warfare. Um, what, is is the hype um, really as big as economic iron curtain and end of the global economy as we know it? I don't think so. You know, even with all of the trade dust up, with with some exceptions, which we can talk about. Um, the the change in the U.S. trade posture with China and position with China has not shifted that much even in the midst of this so-called trade war. Our trade deficit with China continues to climb. Um, China's economy is, is down a little bit but not tragically so. Our economy is humming. Um, you know, there's we – have, we have two leaders who are very good at heightening drama. Uh, everyone knows that Donald Trump is very good at this. Um, and he's coming with lots of drama of, of his own when he uh, gets to the meeting that's not related to the G20 at all. And then there's uh, Xi Jinping who has recast China as uh, a country ready, willing and able to recapture its historic destiny as the world leader in most things. Uh, what do you think, Phil? Is, there, is the hype uh, worth it? I actually will take the other side on this one. I think the hype is worth it. Um, the point is very well taken that we have not seen enormous shifts so far. There was a, a lag between the rhetoric and the actions. So if you look about a year ago, we had just over $500 billion of imports from China coming into the United States. The actual new tariffs that the president has put on, they hit only $34 billion in July an additional $16 billion in August. So by the time you get to late September, you've hit 50 out of 500. That's not a lot. But then things really started to ramp up. It was an additional $200 billion in late September, but at a relatively low tariff rate, 10%, not 25%. So the fact that we haven't fully felt these effects yet does not mean that we're immune from escalation. So I think the worries are to come. And that's what's critical about this meeting is because the president has said, if we don't get an agreement, that 10% on the 200 billion goes to 25%. Plus, he's threatened to put tariffs on all imports from China. So there is substantially worse to come. And it is serious. Um, Ted, do you want to break down some of the issues for us? How, how do you read uh, what the real issues are between the U.S. and China on this? Well, I think there's several ways to split them up. One, there's the whole issue of our uh, trade balance with China. Um, and uh, Phil's probably more expert on this. But the, the, the numbers are always way scarier than the real picture. A lot of our trade imbalance with China, which right now stands around $350 billion, is in a kind of round-trip 
trade, where parts that go into American goods are are counted against uh, our trade deficit, um, and yet there's a huge value add when they make the round trip inside an American product that's shifted abroad um, or that's sold abroad. And uh, American companies make a lot of money on the parts that they buy from China. Uh, they can mark them up 90 percent. As you know, the markup on an iPhone is around 40 percent. Uh, the parts that go into those are a lot cheaper for Apple than they are for the ultimate buyers of those products. But then there's the other big issues which I think are huge threats to American industry and have been over time. You and I have been talking about these for about 15 years. Yep. They're, they're the threat uh, that China continues to pose as – uh, a co-opter of U.S. and global intellectual property. China has a very aggressive fast follower economic policy. It's been very uh, essential to China's growth as an economic power and to uh, the the standard of living to the Chinese, to the Chinese, which has, has gone up enormously because they have replicated global industries by taking um, technology. Uh, there's Evidence recently that the cyber attacks on U.S. corporations have been stepped up during the trade war, not not ratcheted down. There's the issue of forced tech transfer uh, where companies that want to do business in China have to share their technology with a Chinese party and that Chinese party is almost inevitably their ultimate competitor in China. Uh, There's all kinds of other ways that American companies and other global companies have access – forestalled and can't enter the China, Chinese market the, the, the way they could other more open markets. Uh, this has had huge opportunity costs for U.S. industries. For me, the poster child for this might be General Electric. General Electric had a global strategy at, at the height of the euphoria of uh, of its China business. Uh, its, its leadership intimated constantly that it wasn't a U.S. company. It was a global company that China would be as important for GE as the United States ever was. And GE transferred a lot of technology to China. It lost a lot of its premacy in, in uh, the power industry and in the appliance industry and it lost hundreds of billions of dollars from its market value as a result and these Chinese companies have come along roaring. Um, Phil, what do you think the U.S. – I mean do you think the talks that we're going to see here between the two presidents are really going to address these kind of things? I think it was a really good list of concerns. The one that I would add to that list would be subsidies in state-owned enterprises. Um, but the, the reason the, the length of the list is important is – because these are not the kind of simple issues. This is, these are not your parents' you know trade disputes. So it's not simply that you know will we drop a tariff by you know twenty percent or will China make some additional purchases of liquid natural gas? When you're getting to things like intellectual property regulation, state-owned enterprises, these are complex, difficult issues. Um, they're not the kind of things that you really fix over an evening of dim sum. Uh, you know, is there something about what China is doing now that, that um, what do they call it, economic nationalism? They're they're driving um, kind of a uh, a boat to to be dominant, and they just won't open up their industries anymore. I was reading, you know, I was surprised uh, to see that like Goldman Sachs, a company that's been in China forever, that uh, Hank Paulson, who I quoted at the beginning, uh, was in. 20 years ago, and they have no more business in China now than they did then, that their numbers are about the same, that they can't, you know, ratchet up or can't find the space. Is is there something going on in China that um, 
that also is almost unaddressable in these trade talks. Uh, Ted? Yeah, I think, well, to me, the elephant in the room is what is the role that American companies have played for, for a long time in China's practices. Um, there's been a kind of willful, even wanton disregard uh, and unwillingness to pay attention to these key issues like intellectual property. I think one of the problems is is that uh, the way American companies work is that companies that rush into China get a very fast payout for the executive team that's there who are paid quarter by quarter and they're less concerned about the long-term health of the company. So if they lose some of their seed corn – in the form of technology transfer to, uh, to Chinese companies, it's really not on the watch of the executive team that brought the company to, to China. Um, and if you look at a lot of the Chinese policymakers, a lot of the uh, advocacy groups for American industry in China, it's just been one long kind of accommodation to China. They're, you know, I've, I've been told and been in so many forums where heads of financial firms, government uh, negotiators have been saying over and over again, China's cleaning up its act on intellectual property. It, it, it's, it's really getting serious here. No, Ted, you're wrong. Um, and they've just been wrong for 30 years about these things. And it's not something that can be solved from inside corporate America or by corporate advocacy. Uh, this is one thing I like about the Trump administration is they're taking a government approach. And in some ways, this will end up uh, policing our own system. Um, Phil Levy, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I, I wanted to take up your question about sort of this impenetrability of the Chinese market and give a couple historical perspectives on this. The first is just how impenetrable do we think the Chinese market is? We tend to focus, and, and Ted made this point very well, on sort of the bilateral trade deficit. Of course, economists don't like that because exactly as he said, there's things like value added. If you went back about 10 years ago, China had a huge trade surplus with the world. If you look where they are now, it's much more like 1% of GDP as opposed to, say, 8 or 9% of GDP, which is very well within sort of normal ranges. So there's a question there of if you want to measure the impenetrability, you know, that's not to diminish these intellectual property concerns. They're very real. But there is penetration of the Chinese market, and they need things like commodity imports. The other thing I would note is here's what I think – one thing I think is really different about China – much of the rhetoric we get would look very, very familiar if you went back and saw how we were talking about Japan 30 years ago, uh, that they you – know, it was not a free and open market, that they had structural impediments that we needed to address. The key difference is that throughout all of those dealings with Japan – I think there was a lot of confidence in the U.S. that Japan was a strategic ally of the United States. So we were very comfortable with what Japan's sort of goals were on the world stage. We had commercial issues, but not really strategic issues. That's a big difference with China. And we saw that with Vice President Pence's speech about a month or so ago, that there's the economic concerns, but they're also coupled with strategic concerns. Let me pile on there a little bit, which is to say that China's trade picture globally is very different than its trade picture with the United States. If you take the United States out of the equation, China has a global trade uh, deficit of around 5 percent. And uh, that means like we are the one country <laughs> that has these problems with China. 
We're talking with writer Ted Fishman, author of China Inc., and Phil Levy from the uh, senior fellow on the Chicago on the global economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. We're talking about the U.S.-China trade fracas that uh, it has a lot riding on the dinner Saturday night between the presidents of the United States and China at the G20 conference. Coming up in a few moments, we're going to have film contributor Milos Stalik, and he'll talk about Robert Zemeckis's new UFO drama, Operation Blue Book. Stay with us. Um, I, I want to go back to um, how this is impacting people around us. Uh, I know, you know, when China um, slapped some tariffs on the soybean farmers, um, it really knocked them out of uh, the picture. They really got a shot. Um, and in Illinois, uh, a lot of people probably don't know this, but it, it, per year, $1.3 billion of soybeans are sold to China every year. It's a staggering number. And the, the Trump administration's help doesn't seem to have compensated for all of that. Um, Phil, what do you think about what happened there with uh, the soybeans and, and the farmers there? There are, are, are these people looking for some relief from this weekend's uh, discussion? If, if, if President Trump doesn't slap on tariffs, uh, puts the brakes on the tariffs, uh, do they get some relief here? I, I think you've hit on a key question, which is um, a lot of these farmers – were hit, they already had low commodity prices and then losing important market, an important market like China um, just made a difficult problem much more difficult. They were led to believe, not in direct promises, but sort of in the tone, hang tight, we're going to get tough on the Chinese, the Chinese will give in. Peter Navarro, the president's sort of lead advisor on China said, no, nah, there's no way they retaliate um, early on. That did not prove to be accurate. But Relief is around the corner. Some of this would be, as you mentioned, a degree of subsidies uh, as a one-time thing. But really, we're going to resolve this conflict. This is a fundamental tension that the administration is facing. They've put farmers um, on hold saying, we're just about to get you some relief. And yet, the range of issues that they want to take on are not the kinds of issues that lend themselves to quick resolution. So there's a serious question whether they sort of put themselves in a short-term position while trying to grapple with long-term problems. Ted, do you have some thoughts on that? I do. Uh, it, it, it's telling that the place that we feel the most pain is not in our industrial sector. Uh, that it's the farm. It's also telling that the Chinese know us; they know our politics well enough uh, to affect uh, the farmers who have disproportional voting power in in the U.S. Senate. Um, but you know we've 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 had practices in this country for a long time that have had huge opportunity costs for American industry and have retarded the growth in lots of industries. Um, you know, in 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 the high tech sector, we lead at the very top, but uh, China is the highest high tech producer in the world now. Uh, that's an opportunity that we lost, uh, and. For a long time, U.S. consumers overall have benefited from this by having the China price at our disposal. Uh, we've gotten very uh, affordable goods because China can make them at a very low price. Uh, so now we have to figure out what price are we willing to pay in order to try and to reverse some of these realities. And if it means subsidizing the farmers while they bear the pain on uh, uh, um, forestalling exports of soybeans to, to China, I, I think it's a price worth paying. Um, do, 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 how do you feel about that, um, Phil? Is it a 
Well, I think I have a couple problems with it. First, the administration has said they're not going to keep subsidizing farmers. That was a one-off, and they're hitting up against some limits. If this were a price that was going to get us results, I would feel a lot better than I feel under the current policy, which is I think the administration has made it almost impossible for China to resolve this conflict and to do what we want them to do. We had a much better shot through vehicles like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was going to put enormous pressure on China to change some of its practices. I don't think the current approach really does that very effectively. Um, what are you, Before we go, we've just got a minute or so left, but what do you think the odds of some kind of um, positive outcome from this weekend are, Ted? Um, I think if we had a more coherent policy in China, we could get a positive outcome. I'm, 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 I'm not sanguine about the president's state of mind right now at the G20 meeting or what he can get accomplished. He's, he's tweeting about domestic issues while he's there. Um, uh, he seems to be in a particularly splenal mood at the moment. Um, yeah, so uh, when Phil says there's no quick fixes, I think, you know, oh, we're dulled by the president's state of mind at the moment. Phil? Yeah, I like I like the way uh, Ted puts that about challenges. I think there's almost no chance that we get a comprehensive resolution. I'd say a less than 50-50 chance uh, that – you just basically get a pause where they agree to talk some more. That's probably the best that we can hope for. I think it's more likely that they say we had you know, full and frank discussions. We will keep our eye on what's going to happen between President Trump and President Xi of China on Saturday night as they dine and figure out our trade future. Thanks a lot for joining us, Phil Levy, a senior fellow at the, for Global Economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and Ted Fishman, a writer and author of China, Inc., and Shock of Gray. Great to see you. Thank you both. Glad to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milo Stalik, and he'll talk about a new UFO drama. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Next month, the History Channel premieres executive producer Robert Zemeckis' new drama, Project Blue Book. It's based on the real investigations by the United States Air Force into UFO sightings during the 50s and 60s. Project Blue Book has been called When Mad Men Meets the X-Files. Here's a clip. The whole force smelled like death. Lord Almighty. And then saw that thing. As God is my witness, it was not of this world. We have a situation in West Virginia. Family reported seeing something falling from the sky. I'll get down there right away. I need you to meet someone first. Name's Dr. Alan Hynek. You want me to investigate flying saucers? You think it's possible extraterrestrial life exists? The probability of us being alone in our universe is zero. So the new series is called Project Blue Book, 
And with us are the principals of Project Blue Book, which is on the History Channel, Michael Malarkey, a British-American actor and singer-songwriter who is best known for The Vampire Diaries, who plays Captain Michael Quinn, the partner of Dr. Hynek. Uh, Laura Manel, who plays uh, Dr. Hynek's wife. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael Heine, who plays Captain Hugh Valentine. He's uh, known best for Erin Brockovich and Ocean's 13 and YPD Blue. Uh, Sean Yablonski, the co-writer and executive producer. And Paul Heineck, who is the son of Dr. Heineck, but himself teaches finance and accounting, is an entrepreneur, has worked in the area of technology and science, numerous startups, and in the movie business. Welcome all. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. Happy Thank to be here. Thank you for having us. So, Sean, I guess I'll start with you because you're kind of behind all of this in a way. And so, why this? Why now? How this? I mean, I remember seeing all the books, reading some of the books of Dr. Hynek back in the 60s and 70s. I mean, mm -hmm. he was also a prolific and popular author. But that was kind of a moment in time. And now we're the 21st century? Yeah, it's all ideas, I think, have their time, right? I mean, this just feels like it has been brewing for a while. And I think, you know, the UFO phenomenon has been something that has persisted for years. Uh, and there's so much evidence out there for it. There's always been a continued interest. This is sort of the origin story of the beginning of the investigations into UFOs. And by focusing on Dr. Hynek, who was at the time a professor of astrophysics, um, who was brought in to sort of be a skeptic for the U.S. Air Force when they started Project Blue Book. And his journey is about going from skeptic to believer, which is really a great sort of intro for the audience. Um, it was originally a spec script written by our creator, David O'Leary. And I was brought on to be the executive producer showrunner. I like to say David built the boat and then they asked me to captain it. Also, you know, when you dig a little deeper, it was one of the original sort of government uh, fake news organizations. It was sort of like one of the you very the, first ones. The military. The mean. military, yeah. I mean, you know, backed by Truman and – it was essentially about going out there and telling people what you saw you didn't see will give you a rational explanation. Now, that is not to say there is judgment about that. That is to say there was a hysteria going on in the country. There was the Cold War. There was the threat of nuclear annihilation, and people were panicking about what they saw in the sky. So to put a professional team of investigators together and Captain Michael Quinn, played by Michael Malarkey – you know, to go out there and help put the public at ease. And I think what they find when they go out and do it is like, wow, there's way more to this story than meets the eye. So, Paul Hanek, you grew up with your dad and who was a scientist and a conservative scientist who did not readily jump at this outlandish UFO theory. I mean, he... He was a nuts and bolts astrophysicist. And so what did you know about this growing up? It was part of the daily fabric of our lives. He was always an astronomer, and I think the proudest day of my father and for me was when I said my first word, which was moon. I think it was kind of downhill after that because I became a French major, which in a, in a scientist's eyes is anathema. Uh, but UFOs were just part of, of everything. You know, he was in Project Blue Book before I was born and well after I came on the scene, and it was just a normal part of our daily life. So, Michael, you play Captain Michael Quinn, who was Dr. Hynek's partner in real life in Project Blue Book. And you are really there as what? As kind of a disbeliever to carry the military's denial of UFOs? But yeah. what happens? Yeah, I play Captain Michael Quinn, who's kind of a conglomerate of several different um, Blue Book heads who are running it. It's mainly based upon Captain Edward J. Ruppelt 
who also wrote uh, the book on uh, flying saucers, which is um, a very useful tome for all of us because it has all of these cases in it that you can go through. Um, but yeah, he's enlisted to run the project and they recruit Heineck to work with him on the ground to go investigate these sightings or uh, claimed sightings, some of which are valid, some of which are unexplained, et cetera, et cetera. And so did you get into the UFO research? I mean, did you study a lot? I mean, how did you prepare for this? Yeah, absolutely. I read Ruppelt's book, at least all the relevant stuff. It's a very, very large <laughs> book. Um, I, I watched copious amounts of documentaries and articles and um, spoke with a lot of people in the Air Force. And for me as an actor, that was the most important thing is to inhabit who this man was. And I'm kind of a physical actor. I like to start with the physicality and getting into the body of the role and then start painting the tiny strokes, you know. And um, I loved getting in that world, you know. And Laura, you played Dr. Hynek's wife, who comes across, at, the, at least at the first episode that I saw, as kind of an all-American, 1950s, Doris Day, Rod Hudson. so many things. Well, no, 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 no. That, I mean, it's talking about yes. the movies of no, that era. I mean, it's, a, you know, the white picket fence, the perfect 1950s family. Yes. <laughs> yes, until Project Blue Book comes into play and in some ways infiltrates the family. Yeah, it's been great getting to play Mimi Hynek, obviously Ellen Hynek's wife. And I think it's really interesting. She starts off a little bit more sheltered in her life of domesticity, and there's something a little bit stagnant for her in that world. Something's missing, and she doesn't fully know her inner potential, but as Project Blue Book comes along, it acts as a catalyst in a way of change for not only her family, but for her in finding some inner strength as she works with those challenges. And Michael Harney, you play Captain Hugh Valentine, whose role here is what? Well, it's basically to decide what information to release to the public and what information to withhold from the public. And it's during a time when we were really in a critical period uh, with other countries having a lot of stress. So the addition of a possible alien crisis would have been too much for the cultural fabric of our uh, society to withstand. So I think that there was a real preventative stance that we had to uphold in order to achieve balance and to avoid destabilization. Because this is all played against the background of the Cold War, of right. you know the space program, which hasn't yet begun, but we know mm -hmm. it's happening, the atomic... Uh, age is coming into its own, right? You have, right. A, you have a reference in this first episode against duck and cover, which were all the training exercises. Right. So fear is a kind of a... Fear, we talked a lot about that early on, the idea of fear sort of permeating all the social fabric, not just the military, but in the home. We wanted to sort of bring that into it and let people know that during that time, there was this fear that people carried of what could be coming at any moment. I think it was the first time, too, that, you know, wars would not be fought in a front somewhere else. You could have a missile land in your backyard and destroy you. So that was a new sort of phenomenon for the American public to deal with. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic. We're talking about Project Blue Book, which is the new History Channel series. I'm speaking with Michael Malarkey, actors, Laura Manel, Michael Harney, co-writer and executive producer Sean Yablonski, and Paul Hynek, uh, who is the son of Dr. Ellen Hynek and also involved in the film business. So were you a consultant on this, Paul, on this project? I mean, that was your role is in 
kind of giving the background of the domestic life, of the daily life, of filling out the psychological elements of the story? Yes, both my brother Joel and I are consultants on the show. And how was that helpful to you as actors? Uh, so bizarre talking to your character's son when he's now a fully grown man and very accomplished in his life. But um, both him and Joel were very generous with their time in terms of sharing beautiful stories of their family and just looking at photographs of them frozen in time. And that would help inspire you to sort of color your character and the world you're in. They were fantastic. I'd say it also takes yeah. a lot to let go of the story in a way, you know, because yeah. so many times you make something and you find out that the, you know, the family was outraged or whatever, but having him and them close by is um, really fantastic and having their bidding. You mm -hmm. know. Because, Sean, this personal story has not really been told in that way. I mean, we have the books, which, of course, all concern UFOs and UFO research, right? But, mm -hmm. I mean, this larger dramatic story is yeah, something new. To that point, it's about telling his personal story. This is not just a show about the UFO phenomenon. It's really about those characters and, you know, focusing on Alan Hynek and watching that journey from someone, as Paul said, he was a scientist who wanted to sort of approach this with a very scientific, you know, show me the facts. And then over the course of his life, as you see from history, from his readings, this is somebody who had his eyes opened in a way. And that, I think, from a storytelling point of view, is fascinating. That's what you look for. And we have found that in all the characters' journeys, which is great. We said early on that, you know, sort of the shorthand was Mad Men meets X-Files, you know. And what was great about Mad Men were those wonderful character moments and how they grew and the details of their lives. And then you sort of marry it with this sort of unique time period and the subject matter. It's been a wonderful but marriage. But so, so how do you reduce something which is, in essence, a complicated story, right? Because you have the whole – phenomenon, you have the military, which is trying to deny it, you have the personal life, and you have the mechanism of the 30-minute episode, which reduces and cuts everything. It's very economical, but it also pushes you towards stereotype and cliche. Yeah. How do you, how do you manage TV. this? There's a, That's there's, just TV. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a few short answers. One, I've, I've been blessed. I've been in the business uh, for many years and met, worked with many wonderful teachers and other mentors. I've had Tom Fontana, Ryan Murphy, Michael Mann. Mm -hmm. And so I understand the hard work it takes to get those stories correct. But also there's a singular idea, which is this hunt for the truth. And when you apply that to um, the case and then the characters, a lot of the characters have that same mission. They're searching for the truth in the situations they're in. And then I don't judge. And in you a know? way, it's a kind of a classic story because it's the one individual against all of the forces that are trying it's, to deny the truth, it's right? A, it's a tried and true story, yes, to tell. And it's something I think everybody can relate to. So I want to ask you one by one. I mean, so what was your take on UFOs before you began this and where are you now in terms of what you think about UFOs, what they are, what they represent Laura, start with I think for me, in the beginning, I was open to it, but I didn't know what to make of it. But that's what our show is really about. It's searching for, you know, one of the greatest mysteries of our time. Is there really intelligent life out there? And, and I think we make a very, very valiant case for that. So I have to say I am now a believer. Yeah. Okay. Michael? Um, I actually hadn't given it an incredible amount of thought beforehand, mm -hmm. um, I must confess. But um, afterwards, now, I give it way too much thought. 
I'm hooked. I'm watching everything, including my own skies at night, you know, okay. and not out of fear. I'm, I'm curious. I'm excited. I, I welcome something like that. I think if by now we haven't been obliterated by aliens, not, that's not their goal. If they do exist, you know, um, I think it's something a little more potentially humanitarian. And, and Paul, you, of course, grew up with this so family business, family business. And yeah, Michael, yeah. Michael, where were you on this? I was telling Paul yesterday, we first met yesterday, actually. And uh, I used to talk about his father's work when I was in college. And I was aware of it. Um, but I, I didn't make a big deal of it until I started shooting this. And then I really went down the rabbit hole. Uh, the preponderance of evidence for the existence of uh, alien life forms is just uh, overwhelming, I think. And in terms of what you said, Michael, I mean, why are, Sean, so much negative depiction? I mean, why are we always UFOs and alien <clears throat> intelligent life depicted from this perspective of fear? Obviously, you're right, because they didn't, you know, murder us or eliminate us until now, so... It would just throw so much uh, that we feel is bedrock about humanity up in the air, especially religion. I mean, we talk about this, that if aliens showed up tomorrow, what does that say about the major religions of the world? Paul, you mentioned earlier about uh, the Catholic Church got out ahead of this and has sort of published something that... Yeah, yeah. acknowledging the existence of life elsewhere. Interesting. It really makes you question the whole aspect of control. In society and the exertion of control by governing bodies. And I think that's a really interesting conversation to have. We well, really do you think that it feeds into all of these fears of deep state and these kinds of ways it, that, yeah. you know, things that we are hearing now? We live with so little control in our lives sometimes. And I, I think it's human nature when we don't understand something to fear it. And it takes a lot to sort of be open to the idea and to come at it from a place of curiosity rather than paranoia. But like I said, we fear what we don't understand. So it's not a bad thing. I just think it's a natural expression. Michael Harney plays general deep state. Yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) The new TV series is called Project Blue Book on the History Channel. And I've been speaking with Michael Malarkey, Laura Minnell, and Michael Harney, who are three of the principal actors, Sean Yablonski, who is the co-writer and executive producer, and Paul Hynek, who is the son of Dr. Hynek and also in the film business himself. And that has been a consultant. Thank you all very much. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for upping our paranoia, film contributor Milos Stelik. He'll be back next week. Coming up after the break, we will have Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, the segment where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi, is here. Good to see you, Nari. 
Uh, it's a pleasure to be back, Jerome. Uh, happy Friday to all of our listeners, and I hope everyone's recovered from Thanksgiving week. I, I know I have. You have. I'm, okay. ready, I'm ready to move on to Christmas, and I know amongst your suggestions, we do have Christmas offerings. Yeah, absolutely. Irish Christmas in America is one of the things that's going on this weekend, and it's happening tomorrow, December 1st at 2 p.m., 5 p.m., and 8 p.m., Old Town School of Folk Music uh, and uh, the Gary and Larry Moore uh, Concert Hall. It should be a lot of traditional Christmas music from Ireland, and this group is going to be performing it over there. All right. Get your fiddle music on. Absolutely. What else is out there? There is also an interesting recital going on this weekend. And on the Trepco uh, recital day, uh, recital day and night, Sunday, December twenty, uh, December 2nd. Uh, and it's happening at 3 p.m. at the Lyric Opera uh, 20 North Wacker. She is considered to be one of the most phenomenal voices of our times and she's doing it she's originally from russia she has an austrian citizenship and don't tell anybody but i think her husband might be related to me he's from azerbaijan everyone uh, is related <laughs> exactly. to you somehow <laughs> i just realized that the name as i was reading reading the press release i think that guy might be related to me <laughs> <laughs> she is in, in addition to being related to nari yeah. and on trebko one of the most dazzling stars in the world of opera sunday <laughs> December 2nd at the Lyric. Absolutely. Finally, our featured piece. Uh, And our featured piece is going to be one of the most interesting things that we've ever covered in the history of this segment. And it's about a Cuban group uh, called Los Freakis. And uh, these are really very interesting people with a a group of... uh, Counterculture resistance to issues of uh, uh, lack of democracy in Cuba, especially cultural democracy. And we have a couple of very interesting people to talk about what's going on at the MCA tonight with that group. With us is January Parcos Arnal. She's the curator of public programs at the MCA. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. How did you come on to this story about Cuba? So we were working with an organization here in Chicago that I absolutely love named Queer Illinois OK. They're a group of arts activists um, who are thinking and working in a community of HIV-positive artists and scholars. And we wanted to do a program together in this story that Luis Treas really kind of broke on Radio Ambulante uh, just seemed so incredibly compelling. The story of... uh, the breadth of the human experience as told through the contemporary art world is really where our our program wants to be. So this felt right. Counterculture is very arty. Yes. <laughs> There's no That's question true. about that. <laughs> And uh, Luis Treas is with her, US producer for NPR's Radio Ambulante. And uh, tell us more about how you found out about Los Freakies and the freak, the counterculture movement in Cuba. Yes, of course. So I was uh, working uh, in Cuba doing stories on the rock scene there, which is a very interesting uh, piece of history in Cuba because uh, rock music was actually persecuted for a long time in the island because it was – for the longest time, it was seen as the music of the enemy uh, because it, it, it it's subversive. Yes, exactly. And uh, so, as I was reporting on how the rock music had evolved, I kept hearing about a subset of rockers in some Cuban provinces and in Havana that had taken this very radical step to inject themselves with blood that had HIV in order to go into these state-run 
sanitariums where they felt they would have more freedom to be able to form bands and, and play music. And, you know, as I heard about this, I was, I was shocked. Uh, I tried to, to get, you know, the people that, that could tell me the story, the firsthand story of what happened and why. Because when you listen to a story yeah. like this, the first question that goes into your mind is why would, would anyone do this? And it took me actually a couple of years until I finally found a couple of survivors because, uh, you know, very sadly, most of the rockers, young men and women who did this, the self-injectors, well, most of them died in, in the mid-90s. Um, but I was able to find some survivors uh, who, who were able to tell me the story firsthand. And yeah. And so Vladimir Sebeos, a filmmaker from Cuba, is going to join you at the MCA tonight. Yes, that's right. And Vladimir is actually a, a very important person in the um, genesis of the story because Vladimir was uh, is a Cuban filmmaker who was actually the first person to really document what was going on as it was going on in the early 90s. Wow, <laughs> that's a, it's a, it's it's amazing what human beings are willing to do in order to carve themselves a little space of freedom of expression, and that's really the first reaction when you get beyond the gory aspects of it and all the things that may have a cause you to have a visceral uh, reaction to it. When you think about it beyond that. That's really the the point that I walk away with from all of that, and uh, that's you know I wonder what what made you uh, where are you with that all of that you know yeah so so I've I mean I've I've worked with very uh, intensely with the story it came out in English and in Spanish um, and um, you did a Radio Lab segment on it? I, I, yes exactly yeah, uh, the Radio Ambulante yeah that's right exactly and um, yeah so I've wrestled with this because that question of why is pretty complex and you know I think it's important to step back and think about what was going on at that moment in Cuba where you still had like an old guard from the Cuban Revolution in the government. Um, trying to uh, put a stop to cultural practices that they thought were not mm-hmm. in, in accord with the society they were trying to build. At the same time, there was a growing HIV-AIDS epidemic, and the response on the part of the government was to open this sanitaria throughout mm-hmm. the island, and uh, which you know basically consisted of a sanatorium where people were forcibly interned if you had HIV. And at the same time, like the third uh, aspect of all of this is that this coincided with the uh, disappearance of the Soviet Union, which used to uh, give massive subsidies to Cuba in the late 80s and and early 90s. So many of the rocker kids that actually took this very radical step were going through the same very uh, harsh period of hardship and scarcity that most Cubans were going going through at the moment. And uh, they saw in the sanitariums a, a place where they could have a better quality of life while also being able to play the music that they felt they could not play outside. And you described in the uh, piece uh, on uh, a guy named Popo, um, and he was an early uh, uh, injector of HIV into into his uh, system. Uh, could talk a little about him. He seemed to inspire a lot other people to do this, and his his whole thing was very interesting. Yes, that's right. And uh, I think uh, he was a good friend of Vladimir Ceballos, the documentary filmmaker who will be joining us joining us tonight. And that's how his own documentary came about originally. And Papu Lavala was actually more politically mo- motivated when when he decided to take the step to 
inject himself with blood that had HIV. Uh, and uh, I think he was actually looking for freedom. The, but at the same time, you have to we. It's important to realize that there was not a whole lot of information about the spread of HIV at the time. Um, uh, state-run media in uh, Cuba was not very open about this. So many of the uh, young men that followed thought that there could maybe be a cure down the road and that it would be temporary. Um, so I don't know about the whole movement, if everybody did it with the same political intentions, but Papo Lavala, who is this figure who was one of the first uh, persons to do this, he was definitely motivated by, by the thought of gaining some freedom that he could not get outside the sanitarium. And we'll be able to actually see some footage tonight of Papo that Vlad will be sharing with us to be really exciting to be able to hear firsthand from some of these early voices in that movement. Um, so excited about that tonight. And also just that recognition of what Luis just said, which is that there really is still no cure. And tomorrow is World AIDS Day. And in the arts community, it's the day without art. So we're doing this program in recognition of the continued impact that HIV has had, especially on the arts community, the number of voices that we have lost and that its continued impact. And you're doing AIDS testing from uh, four to six before the event. We are. We're doing HIV testing with Lurie Children's Hospital from four to six, completely free, uh, as well as counseling and resources available at the museum uh, before the program, which begins at six. Yeah, really redefining what the museum is supposed to be doing. And that's really uh, hats off to you that you're going beyond the cliche approach to just putting on art and uh, engaging the community that way. Yeah, uh, it's uh, what what I'm interested in, in is uh, how did you go about, you know, as a, as a programmer, as a curator, uh, what is going through your mind when you first encountered the story? Uh do you uh, is your interest in mostly in just putting it out there, putting the story out there, or is there some sort of a public art component that you want to uh, give us a little bit of uh, your um, thinking process about all of this? Everything we do within the public program at the MCA, we try to both reflect our local community and tell a broader global story. So we believe that what is local is global and what is global is local, especially here in Chicago. So that's always been very important to us. Uh, this story in particular met that necessity to tell the story of the human experience through through art and culture, which is really, you know, we're not... We're not a cultural center necessarily. We we tell the story of the arts, and the arts are relevant in all of our lives. So finding ways that um, we can hit that message home are really important to us. And then also being able to work with organizations like Queer Illinois, okay, um, the folks there who are HIV positive and are telling us that this is a story they want in their local community. So we're not just throwing it out there into this community, assuming that we can tell everyone's story. I mean, we're a museum. I'm one person. Yeah. Um, but really relying on our community to tell us what they need from us. So that's also been very important, and we feel like this program is is representative of that. You know, Luis, I wanted to get back to um, kind of other people and how this uh, movement progressed, because it sounds like the people who did it later on, beyond Popo, the man we were talking about before, did it for entirely different reasons and were um, motivated just to be part of this 
art community, the freakies. They, either, if you wanted to be in, you had to be in the sanitarium and, and be there. Yeah, no, it, it seems like that there was a joiner phenomenon that developed over time. And, and some of the young people that decided to do this were not aware of the consequences. And uh, I think a lot of them, uh, when they started to see the consequences of what they did, started to, well, to, to try to wish they, they hadn't done it. Although the first generation of kids that did this. And again, it's just even hard to say how many people actually did this because it was illegal to inject yourself with, with HIV in, in Cuba at the time. So you so you you had to say you had gotten the virus through other means because if they found out you were a self-injector, you would be sent to jail. And that was even more repressive than the life they had outside the sanitarium. So, so it was uh, shrouded in secrecy. I, I've gone through at least uh, uh, the cases of uh, maybe 80 uh, people who did this, uh, young men mostly, but some young women as well. Um, but but it's it's probable that that there were more and yeah th- there was a first uh, round of of people who did this because they wanted to to seek a door out of that old saying um, that was very prevalent in Cuba at the time socialism or death so some of them just chose death. That's it's just an amazing thing. Yeah, I, uh, Luis, I'm just uh, wondering about your experience in Cuba from my trip when I went over there, and that was almost 20 years ago. Um, I found them to be an amazing amalgam, the Cuban officials at least, an amazing amalgam of economic progressivism but yet cultural conservatism. They seem to be very, very sort of a picky about what kind of cultural performances. And even like sometimes we would engage them in conversations about homosexuality, whatever, they would call dismissive. They would say that that's uh, basically hedonism or whatever. It's, uh, it's, is, are they still that way from your recent Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just uh Say this: yeah. uh, There's it, it, it seeming, there's seemingly been a 180 degree turn with uh-huh. how the rocker kids are seen. There is now uh-huh. a Cuban rock agency uh-huh. that is a government-run wow. agency that regulates bands. Yeah. But these, this agency is actually there to decide who gets to play and who doesn't. So they've been accepted, but still they're they're heavily regulated. Yeah. <laughs> Luis Treas is a producer for NPR's Radio Ambulante, and he will be tonight in conversation with filmmaker Vladimir Sabeos, one of the original freakies, and you can see it at the MCA. January Parcos Arnal has been here, the curator of public programs. Thanks a lot for bringing this story to us and to our community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Nari Safavi. Good to see you for Weekend Passport. We'll see you next week. It was a privilege to be here. Have a great weekend, everybody. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.